All right, so we're going to go a little light on Plato and Aristotle because they're hard. They're really hard. No, because I've done big shows before on Plato and Aristotle. I'll link those below. I did like a four-hour one on Plato and I did a long one on Aristotle as well. So I'm going to assume that you don't have much knowledge of Plato or Aristotle. So I'll talk about the general themes. We'll just do Plato first. And if you want more, I've got more and uh, really good uh, deep analyses of the belief systems of both men. But Plato, okay, so Plato... I mean, it's been said in general that everybody in their life is either a Platonist or an Aristotelian. And it's the question of concepts, right? So Plato believes that concepts exist outside of reality. And Aristotle says we assemble concepts from sense evidence, right? And because for Aristotle empiricism, right, we assemble our concepts from, self, from sense evidence, then any time there's a contradiction between concepts and self-evidence, we decide in favor of the sense evidence, right? If there's a conflict. It's the same thing with science, right? You have a scientific theory, you test it against empirical reality, and if empirical reality doesn't match your scientific hypothesis, then you reject your scientific hypothesis, you adjust it, because it always has to match reality. And so for Plato, though, uh, way back at the beginning when I was talking about um, Confucius, and then particularly... Uh, talking about the, the pre-Socratics, this challenge that concepts are much bigger than we are, it's very tempting for people. And it's tempting for both reasons of vanity and reasons of power. And power and vanity are two sides of the same coin. And vanity arises from a lack of empathy, and power arises from a lack of empathy. And vanity is I need to tell you what to do because you're an idiot, and this is why I never tell people what to do in this show, because I have respect for your thinking and reasoning, and the idea that you would ever want to substitute your own capacity for thought with my capacity for instruction would be an insult to us both. And so you have to be humble to be wise. You have to be humble to be right. Science is saying, let's stop making stuff up and really start humbly exploring the universe and assuming that the universe is right and we're wrong. In any contradiction between our hypotheses about the universe and the universe itself, we decide in favor of the universe, of course, because that's humility. Every human being becomes a tyrant unless bound by some abstract restriction. So every human being becomes a tyrant unless bound by some abstract restriction. And tyranny is a form of infancy, right? All infants are tyrants in a way in that they don't have empathy. They uh, clamor, demand, punish, and reward for what they want. They don't reason with you, right? And, of course, that's perfectly appropriate for babies who are the most adorable things on the planet, but if you, this is the thing, I say this in life, this is why philosophy is so helpful, so powerful. If you meet someone in life and they do not have a structure that limits their will, they do not have a structure that limits their will. That structure could be theological, it could be philosophical, it could be cultural. If they don't have any kind of abstract structure that limits their will, you're dealing with a predator. And the predator may prey on you by faking being prey, but nonetheless, uh, it, because then you're dealing with a boundless ego, a boundless will. And people who just make stuff up, they, if you either say ahead of your time, this is, will I, this is what I will or will not do, right? I have principles by which I run the show, like not telling people what to do is one of them. So you either have principles by which you run your life, or you make up principles based upon the petty empiricism of your actions, right? So it's ex post facto reasoning. You either say, here's what I will or will not do. And, you know, nobody's perfect in, in that. 
Nobody's perfect in following their own abstract moral rules. But you either have those moral rules and you say good for you if you achieve them or you say uh, bad for you uh, if you don't. I mean, I was offered a lot of money to do a debate recently on politics and I'm like, no, I'm not doing politics, right? That's sort of my commitment and all that. So you just walk away, right? So if you don't, like, if you, if you have the moral rules, then you have a way to guide yourself. Imperfectly, but you have a way to guide yourself. And if you don't have moral rules, then you do whatever the hell you want and justify it afterwards. You either use reason to prevent bad behavior or you do whatever you want and the principle of whatever you did, uh, uh, you extract a principle out of what you did and call that the good. Right? So if, if you want to go sleep around because you're insecure and were abused as a child, right? If you want to go and, and sell your body on the altar of predatory flesh harvesting, if you want to just go sleep around, then what you'll do is you'll say, I'm a free spirit. Free spirit means, <laughs> spirit's another word for alcohol, it means get me drunk, you can have me for free. So you'll say, I'm a free spirit. And then the people who don't want to sleep around, you'll portray them as uh, as prudes, as stuck up, as 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 unable to relax, as as you know whatever, right? Just just terrible people, and they, they can't have fun and all that, right? And so, if you want to uh, smoke weed because you're self-medicating for a childhood trauma, which is the most common thing, if you want to smoke weed, then you'll create a whole subculture where weed is God's herb and it comes from nature and it's there to help you and it's there to help you relax and it's there to have you enjoy your life. And the people who avoid weed are, you know, repressed missionary Mormons who can't ever, you know, whatever. So, you do what you want and then you create a principle of it afterwards to justify what it is uh, that you've done, right? I mean, we could talk about elections, but hey, I'm off politics. I mean, you'll see this on dating sites all the time, right? All this modern dating crap. And uh, just to give you sort of really vivid example, right? So you'll see this. A woman is over 30. She's hit the wall and she's panicking because all she's done is travel, have pumpkin spice lattes, uh, have sex, and never settle down. And so what does she say? She says on her profile, it's always the same thing, right? It's like these photocopied people, right? And so she'll say on her profile, I've had my fun now, it's time to get serious and settle down. Right, so I remember talking to a woman about this once. She said, I've had my fun now, it's time to get serious and settle down. I'm like, oh, so were you, just, you weren't serious in your 20s? Was that a problem? Now, of course, a wise person would say, oh yeah, it was a total problem. I thought I had forever. I indulged myself in too much hedonism. It was really bad and I've really learned my lesson. And no, they always say the same thing, right? They say, yeah, no, that, that was fine for then, but now it's now it's different, right? It's like, well... You went like you're completely reversing your entire priorities in your life. Does that mean that those past priorities were not so good, or the new priorities are not so good because they don't con- they, they kind of contradict each other, right? It's like no, no, no. For my twenties, that was fine. For my thirties, this is right. And so they're just making up rules on the fly to serve their needs in the moment. When they wanted sexual attention and and the excitement of of new relationships, they pursued that, and the resource acquisition of sexual offering. Then they pursued that, and that you know that that was being fun, and that was uh, living life to the fullest, living your best life, whatever it is, right? Living your best life is another one of these things, right? There's no principle there other than hedonism. Living your best life, not a best life, not the good life, not you, not eudaimonia, not virtue, not the pursuit of heaven, but just your best life, selfish, selfish, me, 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 like a big Pac-Man of endless glow dot stimuli that leads to hell itself. So, yeah, and so the people who completely reverse their principles it doesn't matter. Because they, they have no abstract principles. They just, well, I wanted to have fun 
in my 20s, and therefore fun was the good. And anybody who told me I should have less, quote, fun and, and be more responsible was just trying to tie me down, would hold me down, hold me back, you name it, right? Whereas now that I'm in my 30s, it's time to uh, get serious, right? And anyone who tells me to just go out and date and have fun is like exactly what was told to me six months ago. Um, that Then telling me to go out and have fun was the good. Now telling me to just go out and have fun is the bad. Before telling me to get serious and settle down was the bad. Now telling me to get serious and settle down is the good. It's just the hedonism at the moment, right? You just, whatever you want in the moment, you then create a principle. And also after the fact, right? It's almost on a form of gaslighting yourself into non-existence where you're in a bad relationship and, and everyone said, oh, it's a bad relationship and you stayed within it and you got hurt and heartbroken and abused. And so when you get out of the bad relationship and you say, well, you know, that was, that was a real learning experience, man. I really learned a lot about myself. I really learned a lot about others, blah, 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 blah. In other words, it's become a kind of education, right? Like to learn physics, you just need to put someone, someone needs to put a bunch of physics bags into a pillowcase and beat you around the head. And there's, oh, it's a real learning experience. It's like, no, you just didn't listen to principle. You didn't listen to reason. And you screwed up. But the people who don't have principles are absolutely telling you they'll do whatever the hell they want. And if you contradict them, you are going against their made up principles. Like whatever they want to do, Whatever direction they happen to be running in is absolutely the right and perfect direction, and anyone who tries to get them to change direction is a bad person interfering with their authenticity and self-expression and freedom. I can't do that. Can't do that. But I remember a girl had serious issues, and I said, you know, you could go to therapy. She's like, no, I'm going to work on it myself. I'm going to work on myself. I'm going to work on things myself. And, uh, you know, kind of observed her in life, and like, she, she never did work on things herself. She just, you know, just didn't want to submit her will to any external restriction. This is why people get so messed up about this show. It's like, it's a don't shoot the messenger scenario of, yeah, there are restrictions. The non-aggression principle, respect for property rights. Those are real principles and they're UPB proven principles. Absolutely proven across the universe, across all time. Absolutely proven. And the satanic angry will. The satanic angry will, isn't, isn't, it's not doing what you want that's fine. I mean, it's not great, but doing what you want is not the end of the world. Animals do that all the time. It's fine. It's, it's, we evolved from that. It's still part of us. There's nothing wrong with that. You've got to have a little hedonism in the moment. It's okay to have a cupcake every month, right? So doing what you want is not the problem. It's doing what you want and then creating endlessly contradictory but still universal principles that justify what you're doing. To doing what you want doesn't infect others. Right. If you see a dog dragging its own butt along the carpet, you may be somewhat appalled, but you hopefully are not going to sit down and copy the dog and drag your own butt along the carpet. So you're seeing someone being hedonistic, but I've never, ever met someone, never met anyone in this life who doesn't justify their hedonism according to some universal principle. I mean, a friend of mine was a smoker, and he went to a party, and there was this... Uh, it was a friend of mine and her husband was Japanese and he was vain. He was really vain and had that, you know, uber cool, toss up your cigarette pack, you know, have it land in your, toss up your pack of cards, have it, have it land in your shirt pocket kind of cool, right? Mystery train kind of cool. And it was an outdoor party. I guess I was in my twenties, late twenties. It was an outdoor party and my friend lit up a cigarette and the Japanese came up, Japanese guy came up and said, eh, what are you smoking for? What are you smoking for? That's dumb. Don't smoke. It's ridiculous. You have some willpower, that kind of stuff, right? And 
you know, my friend just just kind of looked at him and it's like, hey, it's an outdoor party, right? If you that's not bothering you. Anyway, so you know, fast forward. I think it was about six months, and <laughs> the, the my friend and I were back at this garden party, and the Japanese guy was there. He was smoking a cigarette, and my friend said, "Wait, you just gave me a whole lecture about having some self control." He's like, "The important thing in life is to enjoy yourself. It's okay to have an indulgence once in a while, uh, right?" So you see, you see, have some self control. It's a universal. It's like a form of of. of uh, one-upmanship, right? It's a form of making yourself superior to the other person. So I just repeated myself. But yeah, so if you're smoking and I'm not smoking, you have no self-control. If I'm smoking and you're not smoking, you don't know how to indulge a little indulge. You don't know how to have a little indulgence and enjoy your life, right? So it's just, it's not the hedonism. It's the principles that spread the hedonism. Hedonism doesn't generally doesn't spread for too long because, you know, you you try that, right? You, you You try that thing. I mean, I remember in my teens... I had a couple of weekends where I got drunk. I mean, I, most people go through this one time. They had a couple of weekends where I got drunk. I happened to fall in with a crowd who were drinkers, just drinkers. And I hated it. I mean, I didn't really ever lose control when I was... I didn't ever lose control when I was drunk. My brain almost perfectly functioned. I would just, you know, I'd get the spins, right? You know, that old Dean Martin line, you're not drunk if you can lie on the floor without holding on. So I'd try to go to bed, get the spins, and feel nauseous. I threw up a couple of times, and then the next day would be a, a write-off because you just have that weird, tired, cotton wool headache, you know, like you're, there's just ash all over your mouth, and oh, it's just terrible, right? So, yeah, I was like, cost-benefit doesn't, doesn't really work, right? Now, of course, when I didn't want to come with this new group of people that I knew who were drinkers, I didn't want to go get drunk, and of course, it was all like, you don't know how to have fun, just, you know, try it, and it's relaxing, and you'll really enjoy yourself, and just don't drink as much. Or they just, you know, really tried to make it a principle of, of fun and enjoyment and all that, right? And, I mean, it was because I was fairly good looking and helped get the girls, I think, too. But, yeah, so I think it was, um, uh, it, you just, it's the principle that causes the hedonism to, hedonism becomes airborne through transient principles, right? So, so I just sort of wanted to, uh, point that out that we all, we all need restrictions and people who tell you that they justify I mean why do you do what you do you know hey it's my 20s it's the time to have fun okay uh, but then your 30s is your time to get serious right so they want to have fun so having fun is the good and anyone who tells them not to have fun is a bad person who's repressed or claustrophobic or doesn't want them to have freedom or is, doesn't know how to have fun but then in the 30s, anyone who's still out there having fun is a bad... Like, you know, it's just, it's really sad. It's really, it's no no principles. We have to find a way to limit our will through principles. Now, empiricism limits your will through principles. I mean, obviously in the physical sense, if you can't negotiate empirical reality, you can't survive, you can't live, any, none of that works, right? So empiricism limits our will. You may fly in your dreams, but you can't fly in real life. Now... Uh, Platonism, though, uh, the theory of the forms, that's a whole different animal. So Platonism, the theory of the forms, is this idea that our concepts are not limited by their manifestations. And I'm, I'm sorry to use this semi-technical language. I wish there was a better way to do it. Your ideas about trees are not limited by the properties of trees. I know it sounds, it sounds for me, it sounds always completely weird. Like, why would you have an idea of a tree that contradicts the property of trees. Like, it, it never made any sense to me. It's like, it's like having, like you've got a statue 
of David, right? The, the famous Michelangelo statue, a statue of David. But the shadow, in the shadow, he's got a hat on. Like David doesn't have a hat on, but in the, in the shadow, he has a hat on. Like, that's insane. If you saw that, that would be some weird David Copperfield disappearing air, airplane illusionist trick, or you'd have something wrong with your eyes, or they're just some bizarre trick of the light or something. Like, that would make no sense at all, right? So to me, the concepts are the shadows that are cast by the objects themselves, and you can't have anything in the shadow that's not part of the object. You can't have a hat on the shadow if there's no hat on the statue. But that's not the forms. The forms is like, the forms, it's related to some degree to, the shadow is related to the statue, but the statue, the shadow can have all kinds of things that aren't part of the statue. Shadow can totally have a hat. Now, you never get any clear explication of, okay, you have a, a form, a concept called the tree. It doesn't have to follow the properties of trees, as, as you would understand them. So can you have a tree that can walk? Can just walk around? Well, you, you never get an answer to these kinds of things. And, and the reason, that, I mean, you understand, the reason why this is invented is so you can have a group of people, and then you call it a collective. You call it a tribe. You call it a race. You call it a class. You call it a nation. You call it whatever, so aggregation, a country. But then the rulers have opposite properties. The rulers can rule over you. You can't rule over the rulers, right? So the aggregation has different properties than any of the individuals, right? The aggregation of trees can, ha- can be the opposite of a tree, right? So the rulers of a nation can do the opposite of their subjects. Because they're all trees. They're all people. They're all human beings. But the rulers can do the opposite of the people. And this is what this whole thing is invented for. The aggregation of the individual instances can have the opposite property of any individual instance. The rulers who represent the aggregation of the country or the tribe can have the opposite properties of the other individuals. They can rule, the others can't. They can rule over, the others can't. They can initiate force, the others can't. They can transfer property against the will, other people can't. So you understand, this is, this, this is, this is why my very first, very first show was called an like, explanation of concepts. This is 40 years ago I was working on this stuff, right? So you're like, well, how, how do they justify it? How do, how, does it, how do you, like, we're all people. The king is just a man. How do they justify ruling over us? Well, they have to invent collective concepts that can contradict the property of each individual. You got a whole bunch of lizards, you got a million lizards, and a hundred of those million lizards have properties that are the opposite of lizards. Now, of course, if you try that in biology, that doesn't make any sense, right? If you try that and you say, oh, we've got this category called lizards. It includes all the lizards except for 100 lizards which have the opposite properties of lizards. Now, of course, if you try that in biology, they'd say, well, no, that. <laughs> what are you talking about? You've got a category called lizards, but then you've got 100 lizards that do the opposite of that, like have, have opposite properties? That makes absolutely no sense. It makes absolutely no sense at all. If they have the opposite properties of lizards, they can't be in the category lizards. And then you say, then you blur out and you say, no, 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 it's different because this is the, the form of lizard. And the form of lizard can contain contradictions. It's like, well, what does that mean? Well, what it means is that rulers get to rule over you. That they're just like you, all lizards, 
but a hundred of these lizards, a hundred of these people have the opposite properties. You can't steal, they can. You can't rule, they can. You can't start wars, they can. You can't force people to fight for you, they can. You can't print money, they can. You can't borrow on the next generation's credit, but they can. You can't force people to pay for education, they can. Even if you laughingly call it education. Right? So you have to create concepts that can completely reverse the properties of individual members and yet retain their collective power. If you have a concept, let's say, you have a concept called the citizen, called the human, the person. If you have a concept called human being. So human beings can't initiate the use of force. Okay, well, that eliminates uh, spanking. It eliminates moral justifications for statism. It eliminates, like, uh, assault, theft, rape, murder, all of these things, right? You can't initiate force. You have to respect property rights. Oh, but the problem is that you have to create a category of people who have the opposite characteristics. You say, well, people can't initiate force. Oh, except for this, this 1% who can, who must, in fact. And then, of course, people say, well, wait a minute, you've just said people can't initiate force. This 1%, are they people? Yes. Well, why do they get to initiate force? Well, the other people give them permission. Well, then they're not initiating force. And that means everybody can initiate force who is given permission. Now, that's constant for everyone, so why would it only be these 1%? There's a social contract. Did I sign it? Did anyone sign it? Can anyone impose a social contract? And you just try and you create a category called human beings and you start to give them moral properties. And you've got to carve out. You've got to carve out an opposite exception bubble for the rulers. You can't do that empirically. You can't do that scientifically. You can't do that biologically. Again, go to a biology conference, say, I have a definition of human beings that includes 1%, 1% of them have the opposite properties of human beings. I don't know exactly what the opposite properties of human beings are, but let's say um, hydrogen vapor in a nebulae, right? So I have this category called human beings, like bipeds, mammals, big frontal lobes, hairless relatively. I got this category called human beings, right? And, but 1% of the things in the category called human beings is interstellar hydrogen vapor. I mean, you just get these funny looks like, what do you, what do you, what do you, what? What? You've got a definition of human beings that in no way includes interstellar hydrogen vapor or interstellar hydrogen dust or whatever, right? So you've got a category of human beings very clearly defined and then you include interstellar hydrogen dust. Why? But see, that's the whole point. So you've got to have forms that can contain opposite characteristics for each of their members, for some of their members, because you've got to remember, create a rule, exclude yourself, create a rule, exclude yourself. You can't do that empirically. You can't say, I've got a category called mammals, and then throw in rocks and clouds and reptiles and books, right? Then you say, well, if you have a definition, then everything has to match that definition. That's empiricism. That's the shadow cast by the statue. Can't have anything in the shadow. It's not part of the statue. I mean, this is as old as Looney Tunes, where you have these shadows that get up and walk away from the right. But you, so you've got to create a twisted universe where the concept can create, can, can contain its opposite so that people can carve themselves out from the moral obligations that are supposed to be common to all people and have the opposite moral obligation to themselves. Thou shalt not steal, I steal. Or just like, just so you understand what this is all for. Like, why is it so prevalent? Why do, why do people believe any of this stuff? 
So when when you hear, and this is right back to my graduate school thesis, my master's thesis, right? When you hear higher reality, other reality, world of forms, neuromenal realm, uh, nirvana, uh, you know, whatever realm is out there, that is this ultimate reality. Ultimate reality is hat on the shadow of the statue with no hat. Ultimate reality is where you put error. Ultimate reality is formalized bullshit. It means I'm wrong, but I'm going to pretend that my error is higher wisdom and higher truth and an ultimate reality. Now, of course, the ultimate reality doesn't exist. And because it doesn't exist, you can make up whatever crap you want and force it on people through the authority and often through the force of your arguments. And, and force of your arguments doesn't mean you're really forceful. It means that you're willing to pull a sword on people. So when you have this ultimate reality, you may have a grudging, okay, it's fine to have the senses, right? Because if everyone inhabits this ultimate reality, nobody can farm, nobody can dig up gold, nobody can fight wars, nobody can collect your taxes, right? Nobody can build your, your sewage systems or, or run your electricity. So you, you're, you're willing to have a lower class of people who are doomed to sense data because you need them to be your slaves and you're willing to exploit them like crazy. But you've got to have this higher reality so that if they question you based on consistency, you can say, ah, oh, well, no, but you know, consistency is just a lower base of the brain. It's, it's, it's animal sense. There's a higher consistency that you just don't understand that only I am privy to and I am my one percenters. We're all privy to this higher reality. And it's just, it's a way of, arming your bullshit and forcing it on people and pretending them to chew it as a nice juicy sandwich. So, yeah. Oh, this is higher reality, man. And higher reality means that two and two makes four for you, but two and two makes shut up and give me your taxes for me. So, okay, so Plato, um, again, we go into more detail in this in my presentation, I'll link below, but yeah, you know, everything we see around us, that's not real, man. It's not, it's not what's real. They're just fuzzy shadows. They're inconstant reflections. Like if if you look at a a wavy lake and you look at the clouds, you can see the clouds in the lake, man, but the the clouds aren't in the lake. It's just an imperfect reflection of the real clouds which are up there in the sky, man. You look at a person's body, you don't see their history, you don't see their soul, you don't see their character, you just see their skin. The real person is on another plane. So Plato says that, like, how do we know what a tree is? Well, before we're born, we live in this perfect world of forms, and we see the perfect tree, and then we come to Earth, we see these inconstant, shadowy, ripply, bullshit reflections of this perfect form, and we, oh, that's what a tree is. And, and that's so that you can have properties of trees that contradict the properties of every tree in the category. You have properties of trees that contradict the properties of every tree in the category so that you can have the 1% of people who can do all the stuff they call evil in others. But it conforms in another dimension, man. It's totally right in another dimension. Higher realm, higher dimension, it's where you put profitable error. It's where you put violently imposed and extraordinarily powerful in terms of exploitation contradictions. So these forms, these ideas, these concepts, they're more real than the individual instances, for sure. For sure. And the individual 
trees or tables or whatever, I mean, they only get their existence from the concept. If there was no concept, there would be no instances. Right now, in another way, we'd say if there were no instances, there would be no concept. But, I mean, you could have things in your imagination, right? But if there were no individual instances, if there were no individual instances of trees, we wouldn't have a concept of trees that exist, right? Because part of the concept, well, we'll get to this with the ontological argument for God, but part of a concept is whether it exists or not, right? So dinosaurs, yeah, exist. Uh, Minotaur, lizards uh, exist. Komodo, dragons exist. Minotaur, lizards? That doesn't sound right. Forget the Minotaur. We just go with Komodo dragons and quote dragons, right? They exist. But fire-breathing, giant, multi-hundred-foot winged dragons that talk, no, they, they don't exist, right? So part of the concept is whether it exists or not. So we don't have a concept of dragons that exist. We have a concept of trees that exist because we can see them through the evidence of our senses. But we don't have a concept of dragons that exist. So... The forms are, and you just use this word, right? You just use this word, and this word is called, and you got to watch this. you got to watch this word. This word is a very dangerous word. The word is called perfect. It's perfect. The forms are perfect. Each individual tree has errors and, and you know, weird things and, and bird crap on the branches and little tumors on the bark and, and, and bugs burrowing through it and, and all of that. It, it's dying maybe, but, but the form of the tree. The moment somebody says to you perfect, they got their hand in your pocket. I'm telling you, a perfect equality, you've got the hand in your pocket and your ass in a gulag, right? Uh, perfect behavior, nope, can't achieve it. It's like somebody saying, well, you have to pay me a tax unless you're in perfect health. Perfect temperature around the world, right? So the moment somebody says perfect, oof, you run, man. Because they're invoking the world of the forms, which means that they're going to exempt themselves from whatever rules they apply to you. Right? That's When somebody says, I, I, the higher realm, higher reality, blah, 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 what they're saying is, I'm excluding myself from the rules I'm imposing on you. I'm going to claim those rules are absolute, but I exclude myself. That's, 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 that's the you know, red flag. <laughs> Literally, red flag, right? So, Plato, I mean, Plato, so Plato says that individual instances they manifest the forms, but they also manifest the opposite of the forms in a way, right? So let's say that you are manufacturing 100 ball bearings of the same size, right? Well, you know that there are 100 ball bearings because, you know, you've got the sense data, you've got the manufacturing specs, you've got the origin material, whatever, steel or whatever, right? So you've got 100 ball bearings and they all look the same, right? A quarter inch across, or whatever you say, you've got a quarter inch across, hundred ball, hundred ball bearings. So they're part of the concept. Ball bearings, quarter inch ball, be- quarter inch steel ball bearings. Ah, but they don't equal each other because they've got microscopic little differences, and they're slightly different weights and sizes and height. Right? So you're saying these ball bearings are the same because you know you throw in. I don't know, a foot diameter ball bearing in there, you're like, that's not the same. It's right. But So you're saying these ball bearings are the same, which is why they're all, they're all quarter-inch ball bearings. But they're not, man, because none of them are exactly a quarter-inch. And they're all different sizes, all different shapes, and different deep, deep, zoom in enough, right? So you're saying these are all the same, which is in accordance with the forms, but because they're not they're in violation of the form. So how can something be in accordance with the form and in violation of the form at the same time? It's a contradiction, man. And that's because you've got this standard called the perfect. 
a perfect quarter-inch steel ball bearing would be absolutely identical. But that's, again, perfect is just bullshit. Perfect is just an, an, a, a synonym for exploitive bullshit. Sorry to be swearing, but I'm passionate about this stuff, as you might be able to tell. So uh, the only standard is good enough, right? Good enough. Good enough standard. Are you ever in perfect health? No. Are you in good enough health to, to live and flourish? Yes. So is, is this a perfect podcast? What would that even mean? Is, this, uh, is there a perfect way to communicate ideas? No. Are you, is your interpretation of some of the words I'm saying slightly different from mine? Yeah, sure, for some of them. I try to do as good a job as transferring this bone density essential information across to your brain. I don't know what it would mean to be perfect in doing that. It would be paralysis, right? So people give you a standard of perfection in order to make sure you don't interfere with their pursuit of power, which is why philosophers are drawn to this perfection so that they stay out of the way of the plundering swords that behead the futures of entire civilizations. And this is all the way back to when we're talking about the ethics of emergencies. Well, I can think the, the Socratic thing. I can think of a of a rule that that might possibly. I can think of an exception to your potential rule, right? Well, of course, if people are so concerned with exceptions to potential rules, then they should never, ever, ever be interested in the forms. They must reject the forms, but they never do. It's just to get you chasing your own tail, so that you don't interfere with their pursuit of power. So the forms are eternal and unchanging, right? So the tree, it grows and it dies, but the form of the tree is perfect and eternal, blah, 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 right? And, you know, standards of beauty, right? So when food was, I talked about this years ago, right? When food is scarce, being plump is considered attractive because it means you have resources. If food is plentiful, then being skinny is a sign of attractiveness because it means you have self-control. I mean, it's an IQ thing, right? So if food is scarce and you're plump, it means you have the IQ to get extra food or at least the power to extract it. If willpower is associated with IQ, uh, and so if you're slender in a time of plenty, it means you have higher IQ. In the past, when most men worked outdoors, then having a tan was considered uh, unattractive. And now, when it takes money to go and sit on a beach, uh, and and most people work in offices where they don't get tans, now being pale is unattractive, and being tanned is attractive, right? So the, the content of beauty comes and goes, but the form of beauty is eternal and unchanging, right? So, <laughs> I mean, it's a contradiction too, right? So Plato says, well, the forms exist, just not in any way that you could ever track by sense data or pursue through rational means. So the sense ex- exist, but you can't reason them, and you can't ever find them in reality, objective, sensual, material reality. Now, things which are logically self-contradictory and you can't ever find a material reality don't exist. That's, that's the exact definition of them not existing, right? The exact definition of them not existing is either they're logically self-contradictory, a square circle, or it's impossible to ever find them in material reality, right? That's the, So when people say, well, these things exist, but just not they're logically self-contradictory and you can never find them through the evidence of the senses, either directly or indirectly, right? Like you can't see uh, infrared, but you can get an infrared camera, right? So it will never show up in the evidence of the senses and it's logically self-contradictory. That's exactly what it means to not exist. Do not exist. So when somebody says forms exist, they're saying that which does not exist, exists. That's what I mean when I say it's just a place you can put uh, bullshit to exploit people. 
So yeah, higher plane, man. Higher plane. <laughs> Try this. Try this. Two and two make four, says your math teacher. No, two and two make five, but on a higher plane. The form is two and two make five. The crappy little reflection is two and two make four. So you've got to mark me according to the realm of the form. It's not according to... Blech. Blech. So the realm of the forms is true reality, man. And the forms, you see, are the only source of knowledge. Because the forms are eternal, timeless, and changeless. True knowledge is eternal and timeless and changeless. It can't change. It can't change. Genuine knowledge is eternal and perfect. Again, perfect. It's perfect. We've got to achieve equality. Bend over. You're about to be reamed by equality. So if, if true knowledge can't change, then the only real knowledge you could possibly possess if, is of things that don't change. And the only things that don't change are the forms, right? And so, yeah, just create this big portal. And everything that is false and exploitive and bullshit and evil, you put in there and you say it's magically transformed through this portal into perfect, eternal, wondrous forms that you can never understand and can't be explained to you. So up against the wall if you disagree with me. And I'm not kidding about that. Tyranny comes from the forms. Tyranny comes from an ideal perfect standard that can never be explained to you rationally and you can't ever check with the evidence of your senses, so you just shut up and obey. Shut the F up and obey. Now, uh, you know, we can get into the forms and the opposition to the forms and all of that, but, you know, at the risk of my usual annoying arrogance, maybe, and look, I don't mean to be arrogant, maybe it's just, I don't know, a kind of autistic thing, but, you know, when people are just obviously wrong, it's not arrogant to point that out. You know, like if if, if some 300-pound, buck-toothed, pimple-faced, squinty-eyed, frizzy-haired monstrosity of a person comes up and says, oh, actually, no, they could say I'm a model now. <laughs> you know, but if some 400-pound guy comes up to you and says, I just won the Boston Marathon, is it arrogant to say, pretty sure you didn't there, buddy? <laughs> pretty sure, Unless it was in, like, hot dog marathon, pretty sure you didn't. So it's not, you know, when people are just obviously wrong. It's not, it's not arrogant to just point it out. Now, of course, you could say, well, well, if it's so obvious, then why, why haven't, why haven't other people said so? I don't care. I don't care. You know, it's like it's like saying somebody saying to you, "Who's four hundred pounds?" They say, "I just won the Boston Marathon," and you say, "No, you didn't." And he said, "What are you talking about?" All of my friends agree. All of my friends and family agree that I won the Boston Marathon. It's like I don't care. You didn't win the Boston Marathon. You're four hundred pounds. Unless it was some canon thing. I mean, you didn't win the Boston... Like, you didn't. Sorry, I know that. I, you didn't check. I don't need to check. I just know 400-pound people don't win the Boston Marathon. 400 pounds, you couldn't even run the Boston Marathon. Your knees would give out. You wouldn't survive. So, it's... You know, when people are obviously wrong and other people say, well, well, no one else. There's really smart people. Have, like, I don't care. I don't care. Really smart people believe that there's a square circle. I don't care. Well, why would they lie? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I could make some guesses. I don't care. Maybe they're really, pal- well, really well paid by the state to say there are square circles. Maybe they're selling square circles or the illusion there too. Maybe they'll get heavily punished if they don't say there are square circles. I don't know. I don't care. doesn't matter. I mean, this is, in, in that sense, I probably don't have as strong a social sense that, that, or a, a sort of social subjugation sense that most people have. Look at that, a triple S alliteration right there. 
But for me, I actually have a very incredibly strong social sense, right? So, I mean, I do thousands of these call-in shows, have great conversations. With, I have an incredibly strong social sense because I know that if, if some 400-pound guy wants me to believe that he won the Boston Marathon, if I agree with him, we never get to meet because we're both deluded. We're both living a lie. We're both participating in a lie. And the lie doesn't exist. And the lie is the foundation of our relationship. Therefore, our relationship doesn't exist. Agreement to nonsense is isolation in reality. Agreement in nonsense is isolation in reality. You can only meet people through the truth. You can only meet people through the facts. You can only ever meet people in reality. I mean, if you said, meet me at the corner of West 22nd and 3rd Street tomorrow at 2 o'clock in the afternoon in my dreams. <laughs> well, if it's in your dreams, you, the guy's never going to show up because he's not, you're never going to meet him. Unreality is isolating. You can't meet people in unreality. You can avoid the pain of rejection if you don't agree with other people's bullshit, but you can't ever have a relationship with people based on unreality. So I have a very strong social sense in that I will not take farts and call them a sandwich. I will not take imagination and call it reality. I will not take non-contact and call it canned contact. We can only meet each other in reality. So, okay, let's just do Plato's forms like real simple. Okay, so imagine this. Imagine you see an ad online and the ad says, Miracle New Telescope can see over the horizon. Amazing telescope can see over the horizon. You're skeptical. But, you know, come down for a free demonstration, no obligation, blah, blah, blah. Free lunch, whatever. Meet me at the lighthouse. The lighthouse is on a cliff overlooking the ocean, right? So you go down to the lighthouse. You're the first person there. And Bob, the telescope, uh, sorry, the, uh, the, um, yeah, the telescope salesman, Bob, has got the telescope set up. So there's the edge of the cliff, there's the ocean, there's a lighthouse. And on the other side of the lighthouse, facing away from the ocean, is a telescope pointed directly at the lighthouse, Right? And he says, oh, well, thank you. You're literally the first customer of this amazing new technology. You can, see, you can see all the way around the world with the right conditions, right? The right weather. You literally can zoom in. You could be bending over, looking through this telescope. You could zoom in enough. You'll be able to see your own butt eventually. And you're like, come on, Bob. Like, come on. Right now, you look at the telescope. The telescope's pointed directly at the lighthouse. On the other side of the lighthouse is all this stuff. And you think, well, gosh, can it actually see through things? I, you know what? I'm not even going to ask. I'm just going to look through the telescope. Can it? And maybe maybe he's put it right in, maybe Bob's put the telescope right in front of the lighthouse so he can show you can actually see through the lighthouse. It's incredible. So you take the cap off the lens, you look through the telescope, and all you see is the lighthouse. Like, because it's like, through, the telescope is three inches away from the lighthouse. And he says, can you see, can you see, over the, you can see over the horizon, right? Because this telescope can see over the horizon. What do you think? I mean, you'd think that Bob is insane. Would you sit there and say, well, if I move it, maybe it can. Or, you know, I'm going to ask Bob why he's pointed at the lighthouse. No, you're just trying to get out of there because Bob is either trying to rip you off or he's totally mental, probably dangerous. Who knows, right? But this is Plato and the forms. And I'm not kidding about this. This is so blindingly obvious. I don't even know. I don't even know how to say it, right? So, Plato says that knowledge of the good, knowledge of that the forms 
is the, the forms are eternal and unchanging. They can't change, right? Now, Plato is all about the good and the moral, and he wants to organize society into these cults where brothers and sisters could end up incestuously sleeping with each other and producing children. Like, I'm not even kidding about this stuff. It's monstrous and all that. But, okay, so the good, and Plato's a moral philosopher, right? So the good and the virtuous and all that, he's willing to use force to achieve his moral goal of a just and pure and good society. And it's, you know, so, okay, He's telling you he's selling you this telescope that can see to infinity. So if Plato has studied the forms and Plato says the good is a form which he has studied and is eternal and unchanging, what's well, not that hard to figure out whether the forms exist for Plato, which is is he wrong about morals? Is he wrong about morals? Now, if he's wrong about morality, then the forms are bullshit. Because he studied the forms, he knows the forms, the forms are eternal and unchanging. He knows what they are, he's absorbed them, he's navigated by them, he, his pronouncements are informed by the forms. And since the forms are eternal and unchanging, he can't have gotten anything wrong about morality. Clearly. Right? If a guy says, I'm all-knowing, and he writes down things that he says are true, and they turn out to be false, clearly he's not all-knowing. And you only need one instance. One instance. If he says, you know, he's some 10th century guy, says, I'm all-knowing, and he writes down E equals MC cubed, rather than MC squared, well, he's wrong. He's just wrote something, and he says, this is true, and he's wrong. So, I mean, let's just look at something hopefully not too controversial. Slavery. Now, Plato has studied the forms and know the forms and says, hey man, the forms are just, they're out there and they tell you the perfect truth about morality. They tell you the perfect truth about morality. Now, slavery is evil. It was, outside of child abuse, of one of the greatest evils in all of human history, if not the greatest evil outside of child abuse. Child abuse is the portal through which almost all other evils come. For more on this, check out my novel at freedomain.locals.com. It's called The Future. So, I think we can hopefully accept that slavery is immoral, okay? Now, remember, the world of the forms is perfect and unchanging. And if Plato has studied the forms and says the forms is where the good is, the forms is where virtue are, the, the forms is where morality resides, it's perfect and unchanging and eternal, then if Plato justified slavery or accepted slavery as a moral institution after studying the forms for his whole life and advocating the forms for his whole life, then he, like, you, hey man, if you set up a standard of perfection as a moral philosopher, you can't get anything wrong. And since the good is eternal and unchanging, and Plato claimed, claimed to have knowledge of the good, then the greatest evil in his society outside of child abuse was slavery. So Plato studied the forms, the good, eternal and unchanging, the greatest evils, the two greatest evils, well, three, three greatest evils, right? The state, slavery, child abuse. And the state enforced slavery and the state enforced child abuse, so it's a circular relationship as I've talked about before, right? Child abuse leads to the state, state protects child abuse in order to sustain its nutrition, right? The state is fed by child abuse and therefore the state generally protects child abusers 
so that more children get abused and there's more demand for the state. So with Plato, having had contact with the electric, perfect, abstract world of the forms, he would have explicated and argued for moral ideals that would be shocking to his contemporaries, but which we would understand as like, wow, this guy, did he ever figure out morality? Because he was like thousands of years ahead of his time when it came to opposing child abuse, unjust oligarchical power, and slavery, and the subjugation of women, and you name it, right? Okay. So, uh, yeah, how did, uh, how did Plato deal with slavery? Well, uh, yeah. Plato argued it was just moral and right for the better to rule over the inferior. Right? In Gorgias, nature herself intimates that it is just for the better to have more than the worse, and more powerful than the weaker, and in many ways she shows among men as well as among animals, than indeed among whole cities and races, that justice consists in the superior ruling over and having more than the inferior. So racial supremacist, class supremacist, uh, uh, and uh, uh, justifying uh, slavery, I mean, there's a, a whole thing, we won't go into the content of it, where there's a demonstration about Socrates' belief that all knowledge is just remembering that we're born uh, with all, all the knowledge we could possibly ever have, and we're born uh, omniscient, uh, and it's just a matter of remembering rather than studying. And he calls over a slave boy and gets a slave boy to double the area of a square, right? And the, he tries to double the width and length of the square. He says, no, no, that would be four times. And eventually he gets the slave. But there's no, there's no, there's no intimation that the slave boy is wrong. Right? No intimation that a slave boy is wrong. Or, or that there was anything wrong about slavery. So he justifies slavery, uh, justifies tyranny, uh, and uh, never opposes uh, the ancient Greek habit of raping children, uh, little boys. And so he studied these perfect and eternal world of the forms, right? And he knows what the good is. He's a moral philosopher, knows what the good is to the point where he's willing to use force to organize society in pursuit of the good. So either Plato's right and this kind of slavery and, and child rape and so on is the good and we've just drifted so far from the form. Well, come on, like we can't, we can't go there. Like we, we, simply, we simply cannot go there. And so, I mean, they call it pederasty, right? It's this relationship between young men and boys, often an older man. And, uh, yeah, Plato doesn't uh, have any particular uh, issues uh, with, with all of this. So, the forms, how did they help Plato with his eternal moral truths? Justification for tyranny, justification for collective systems of raising children that lead directly to incest, uh, justifications for uh, the initiation of the use of force, justifications for the subject, subject of violence, subjugation of other races, other classes, uh, entire groups of people, and justification for slavery, subjugation of women, blah, 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 and uh, for um, the uh, sexual assault of children. And so here's a quote of what, uh, this is a little quote of what Plato's perfect world of forms was condoning. To the ancient Greeks, pederasty was a respectable custom. It involved neither violent rape nor the use of a submissive slave, but the ardent courting of a free boy. Okay, it's a little amoral, this text, but anyway. 
there is much debate among scholars about the age of the youths when the courting began. Professor James Davidson writes in his book The Greeks and Greek Love that the Greeks placed an emphasis on the courting process for young men not starting until they hit puberty, and that puberty itself arrived later in antiquity than it does in the modern Western world. On the other hand, Marilyn Skinner, professor of gender equality, argues that it most likely started at or around the age of 14 for young men. So, yeah, a year older than my daughter. Actually, no, my daughter's going to be that age in a couple of months. Regardless, once they reached puberty, the courting process began. The courting process was like the one undertaken by men seeking a young bride at the time. The older male would court the youth by flattering him with gifts. This would continue until he eventually won the young man over and claimed him as his beloved. But the boy could accept or wait for another. This process occurred with both young girls and boys after entering puberty. Pederasty was viewed as the masculine analogue to marriage, the rite of passage that Greek girls of the same age were subjected to as well. Ultimately, pederasty was a passing stage in which the adolescent was the beloved of an older male and remained such until he reached a certain developmental, developmental threshold. After reaching that threshold, the young man would in turn take on an adolescent beloved of his own. The pederastic relationship was part of a transitioning to full adulthood and citizenship. <sighs> Once a pederastic relationship was established, the older male had the responsibility of being the boy's teacher and protector to serve as a model of courage, virtue, and wisdom. The older Greek male was referred to as the Erastes, which translates to lover, while the youth was the Eromenos, the beloved. Although these translations use words such as lover and beloved, they do not translate to love as we know it today, with mutual desire and shared affection and equal satisfaction. Again, this practice was based on the dominant submissive construct with the view that love was only one-sided. There are those who categorize the act of pederasty, pederasty in ancient Greece as simple pedophilia and an act of abuse towards the younger males involved. You think? Remember, this is preying upon boys who are still more than a decade away from intellectual maturity. Ugh. Comparative literature professor Enid Block is a loud critic of the practice and argues that pederasty involved the unjust exploitation of a trusting a helpless victim by someone in a position of power. Yeah, of course, of course. Of course. So, we, and of course, you know, the argument is, well, it was the morals of the time. It's like, okay, fine. It was, uh, let's say it was the morals of the time. I don't agree with that, but let's just say it was the morals of the time. Okay. Then the forms are bullshit. Because if Plato can't see, and there's a reason I used the phallic <laughs> lighthouse symbol, right? If Plato can't see the sexual abuse of boys in his own class, culture, and society as any kind of moral issue, if you can't see that slavery is wrong, if you can't see that tyranny is wrong, if you can't see that incest, which his system would certainly produce, is wrong. But he claims that his knowledge of the forms gives him perfect, pure, and immortal, unchanging, moral knowledge. Then his studying of the forms did nothing for him. If I claim to be omniscient, even if I claim to be omniscient about one thing, I'm, I'm omniscient about math. Two and two make five. Well, I've just disproven, right? So he says he has perfect and eternal moral truths. Now, without a doubt, slavery is immoral. UPB proves that. It's the initiation of force. It's a violation of self-ownership. And it can't be universalized. Slavery can't be universalized. Because you need a slave owner and a, a slave. Can't be, not everyone can be a slave or a slave owner. Can't be universalized. Boom, UPB done, right? Easy, easy. It's not complicated. So Plato says, I have eternal 
perfect and pure moral knowledge based upon my study of the forms. But he gets everything about morality wrong. I'm omniscient about math. Two and two make a unicorn. <laughs> it's the ravings of a crazy person. So the moment, see, if you want to claim infinite knowledge, eternal unchanging knowledge, good luck. Good luck with that. Because you've just set yourself up a standard where the moment you get something wrong, you, you're totally wrong. You're just a bullshit artist. You're a con man. So either he was right about everything and we should get all this horrible stuff back, or he was wrong about everything, first and foremost, including the forms. Now, I've not really seen much of this argument around. Everyone's like, well, the form of beauty has to have a form of its own and is contradictory. And, you know, Aristotle, when he was arguing against the forms, used an argument like that, right? Even the form of beauty must have a form. It's an infinite regression problem, right? I don't know. How about, you know, slavery is wrong and, and he defends slavery. And so saying he has perfect knowledge of perfect morality that's eternal and unchanging is bullshit. Can't even see the lighthouse, but claims he has a telescope that can see forever. Doesn't even notice when looking through this telescope, he can claim to see forever through. He doesn't even notice that there's a lighthouse right there. <laughs> I know perfect morality for all time. Slavery is great. Oh my god. Oh, I don't know how people do it. How does this how does this stuff survive? <laughs> now, of course, Plato would say, Well, he, you know, I may have gotten things wrong, you see, but but the reason that I got things wrong is the forms is a is a real challenge and, and sometimes we're distracted by the material. <laughs> yes, I have perfect knowledge of the forms. The forms are perfect knowledge that are eternal and unchanging and halal. <laughs> Oh, you got this wrong, this wrong, this wrong, just totally opposite of, of yeah. Well, but you see, the forms are complicated. Okay, so you, you you can never be wrong. I mean, that's what the forms, that's to tell you. You take all your bullshit, you stuff it in another dimension, and you call it higher reality. <laughs> you take all of your absolutely wrong crap and just say, well, I'm, I'm right in another dimension. <laughs> you cheat on your wife, you say, no, but in another dimension, I'm a perfect husband. <laughs> your wife has a child with another man and says it's yours. You find out, and she says, no, but in another dimension, in another dimension it's your child. <laughs> so shut up. Don't You can't criticize me. You can't disprove this other dimension. Oh, my God. Try that. You don't pay your visa bill. <laughs> visa calls. You have to pay your damn bill. You say, no, no, no. In another dimension, I paid your bill. <laughs> oh, break the law. In another dimension, I obeyed the law. <laughs> Oh, God. I, I failed out of math, but in another dimension, I got 100% right. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just mad. Try this anywhere except challenging the power of the rulers. Oh, my God. Anyway, so, yeah, I hope this helps. Hope this makes sense. Freedomade.com slash donate. Please help me out with these shows. They actually, believe it or not, I mean, it takes a lot of work to make it seem this effortless, and I hope that you will uh, help, help me out at freedomain.com slash donate. Talk to you soon.